I'd like to put the pads on her in case something goes bad and in case we may might need to pace her. Okay, pads are on the patient. Are they connected to a machine? They are connected to a machine that happens to be a defibrillator and can pace. Awesome. I just stuck some random pads on here. Nothing. Some decorative stickers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. It's a medical education podcast where medical students teach each other about emergency medicine. But not this time. This time it'll be a resident, too. My name's Armand. I'm a fourth year going into EM. And I'm joined by my heroic... And I guess Harry, because we're all we all have facial hair on this one. Co-hosts, we are joined by Jordan and Kyle. Hey, I'm Jordan. I'm one of the emergency medicine first year residents. It's nice to be on here again. Hey, I'm Kyle. I'm a fourth year going into emergency medicine. Okay. Now that we've introduced ourselves, do we have any announcements? The announcements we covered in a recording right before this, but basically there's less than 48 hours until we find out whether we matched or not. And that's fine. By the time this comes out, we will have already found out. That's right. Yeah. Unless I edit it. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. No, it'll be too fast because this is going to come out at what we usually publish on Monday at 6 a.m. Okay, sure. sure. In uh, five hours, we find out if we match. If you're listening to this at 6 a.m. in the morning, (laughs) good for you, first of all, for being awake at that time, especially if you're on the West Coast. I do look forward to both of you, as well as your MRAP related podcast emergency medicine podcast club podcast hosts all matching into great programs thank you so much jordan we really appreciate that we also really appreciate that you've been on now uh three four episodes and still don't know the name of the podcast that you're on we appreciate that (laughs) now he's never gonna come back my understanding (laughs) is that it changes every single time that's right all right guys the format of the podcast is the same as always this time it'll be me and kyle who are going to be walked through a case by jordan And we are going to try and get through this with our one collective dignity and honor intact. And hopefully at the end, the patient's going to be alive and well. Although Jordan did say that this was a critical care case. So I don't know if I can at all promise that that's going to happen. But hey, at least we'll learn something. Uh, We have some goals on this podcast. They are one, to learn one new thing. Two, for that thing to be about EM. And three, to have some fun. And also four, to not bring out match anymore. We're sorry. That's all done. Let's get started. You have the floor, Jordan. Teach us. All right. So today you are working in the emergency department. You have received a call in from EMS who's saying that they're bringing in a critical patient with abnormal vitals and you're getting your critical care ready for their arrival in the next three minutes. The EMS arrives and they come in with a 50-year-old female. Per EMS report, they were called to her house by her husband for feeling, quote, weak and tired this morning. It's about 9 a.m. Go for it. Before EMS leaves, can they tell us anything else or is that all we're going to get? They say, you know, I was I was talking to the husband a little bit. I think she has a history of some heartburn. Um, he was noticing that last night uh, she seemed fine going to bed. Uh, everything was normal. Uh, when he woke up this morning around 6 a.m., she seemed kind of pale, a little bit out of it, maybe a little bit confused um, and weaker than normal. And so he knew something was wrong and called 911. All right, let's do this. What are her initial vitals like? Her blood pressure is 70 over 40. Oh, okay. Her heart rate is 28, respiratory rate of 18. Her temp's 97, and she's setting 97, 98% on room air. Okay, 
do we smell anything on her at all? I know it's a weird question, but I've gotten in the whole like enter a room. What do you see here? Smell. All you smell is the nice uh, lavender incense that the nurses go around putting on your masks. Wow. Pro tip right here, everybody. Unless you're allergic to lavender, then don't do that. <laughs> oh, you're in the right place then. <laughs> True. Regardless, no smells. Okay. Cool. We should probably get some IVs in her with that blood pressure. Agreed. Okay. Your nurse is working on getting IVs in. Thank you, Nurse Barb. I'm going to just go through the ABCs with her. What is her airway like? Is she phonating at all? Would you like to talk to her? Oh, is she? T- okay. Yeah. Hi, what's your name? Hey, uh, my name is Anne. So her airway's intact enough that she can phone it. Breathing, what's her work or breathing look like? She's got a relatively normal respiratory rate. Her breaths are equal bilaterally. Okay. Uh, you don't hear any specific noises on her breathing. Okay. We're going to have Nurse Barb also place an entitled CO2 on her. Also, could we get her on the monitor and an EKG since sure. her heart rate was 28? Yep. Putting her on the monitor uh, and the tech's going around to find an EKG machine to bring Beautiful. Her to her. We're also going to get a D-stick glucose right away. All right. D-stick glucose is drawn, comes back at 85. That's fine. Yeah. It was below 70 that I start wearing. Nurse says, okay, this patient looks bad. What are you going to do? Maybe we can split up responsibilities, Kyle. I'm going to go get a ultrasound to do a rush exam on her and you can do everything else. Ah, cool. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to do a rush exam though. And fast. Might as well. All right, so 60-year-old, sorry, 50-year-old female. Oh, can we get a pregnancy test as well? Pregnancy test is sent. Okay, so 50-year-old female, history of heartburn. I think that was kind of all I ended up hearing. And then coming in with starting this morning, being pale, altered mental status, and being weak. But she Was she fine before she went to sleep last night? Her, the husband, she was totally fine and normal before she went to sleep. All right, let's do something about this blood pressure and heart rate. So I need to know what that EKG is, though. I, I don't know. A, a heart rate of 28. Does she take any medications? Patient does not take any medications. Your EKG is in process. They're putting the leads on. It'll be back in just a second. Okay. What other initial things we need to ask her about? And do you know where you are right now? Yeah, I'm, um, uh, I'm at the hospital. I'm, I'm not feeling too well. I'm feeling kind of weak. Okay. What happened? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where I was. I was just, I, I just feel weak. And what do you mean by tired. weak? I'm tired and lightheaded weak tired lightheaded what's the last thing you remember you said you don't really remember what happened i don't remember i was just my husband was worried and and i wasn't feeling well and so i think you got an ambulance and brought me to the hospital okay what should we do Kyle? we need to do something about the blood pressure and it's either you think fluids but with the heart rate of 28 i just end up fluid overloading her if she's not pumping it out so maybe just start with atropine to speed her heart up. Depending, I just want to know what the EKG is. I don't yeah. want to ruin something. Or like if she's in like complete heart block pacer, we should put the pads on her. <laughs> yeah. We should have done that a little while back. That's what we're here for. We're here to learn. All right. So your EKG is, they're hooking up the leads of your EKG. Nurse Barb looks at you and says, hey, this patient is hypotensive. And so are you going to do anything? Yes, I'd like to put the pads on her in case Pacing something pads. goes bad and in case we may might need to pace her. Okay, pads are on the patient. 
Lovely. Are they connected to a machine? They are connected to a machine that happens to be a defibrillator and can pace. Awesome. Just, I just stuck some random pads on here. <laughs> <laughs> Did that Nothing. Anything? Some decorative stickers. I also think atropine, but at the same time, all this is kind of predicated on that on that EKG. Like, I don't want to start giving her atropine and if, if I don't know exactly what's going on. Nurse Barb mentions to you that, hey, while you you were talking about atropine, the patient's becoming a little bit more... Uh, somnolent and really isn't answering my questions much. Oh, hey, Anne, can you wake up for me? Can you open your eyes? Does she open her eyes? She opens her eyes to painful stimuli. Okay, I feel like we have to intervene fast because I feel like this is going uh, going south real fast. Mm-hmm. Here's your EKG. What do you see? It's definitely bradycardic. You may not have all twelve leads here, but this is the best picture I could get. It is not normal sinus rhythm. It definitely looks definitely not. Um, yeah. Very much heart block like third degree heart block in my opinion because these peas are all over the place yeah not associated with qrs at all nope cool can we turn that uh pacing machine on yeah you want to pace the patient yes yes we do yes okay yeah nurse barb says uh, i don't know how to use this thing can you tell me how to use it cool i would can like you to do turn it? the knob to pace okay that's all I got, Armand. Take it from here. All right. Thanks so much, buddy. All right. You can go get the ultrasound and do the rush. Uh, all right. So for pacing, we can turn to pace, set it to, it's like dependent, I think. Set our desired rate to, I'm going to say like 75 and then um, turn up the jewels to, I don't remember what it is, actually. I don't remember where we start at for trying to get capture. I want to say 60. We did this. Do you remember? Yeah. You just like so slowly you, turn them you, up until... Yeah. It starts capturing. Put it on pace. You put the jewels to 60. EKG looks the same. What do you want to do, Kyle? You had a good idea. You just keep turning up the um, jewels until it starts to capture it. And then once it gets to, like, say, we'll just go with 75 as well. We want to pace that. Once it gets to 75, crank it up another 10 jewels. And then voila. So you're turning it up. You're turning it up. You hit about maybe 90 uh, and you seem to get electrical capture. Your heart rate goes to 75. The pulse, radial pulse that you're feeling matches up with that. Nurse Barb is taking another repeat set of vitals, and the blood pressure has gone up from 70 over 40 to 90 over 45. What's her mental status like right now? She still seems kind of somnolent. She'll open her eyes from time to time, Um She's confused. to answer some questions appropriately, but looks looks really fatigued. Hmm. Can we listen to her heart and lungs now? Yeah. Great job. Physical exam. You listen to her heart and her lungs. <laughs> she now has a regular normal sinus rhythm. You hear some faint bilateral crackles at the lung base, otherwise normal. What other physical exam do you want? Does she have edema in her legs? She has maybe some trace Pitting ankle edema, nothing super significant. Any JVD? No JVD. Any abdominal tenderness? Does she like arouse to abdominal palpation? No abdominal tenderness. Okay. Can we also get a Utox as well? Utox. What other labs would you like, Armand? So let's do a CBC, a basic metabolic panel. VBG. VBG. Lactate. With lactate, yeah. We already ordered a pregnancy test, urine tox. All right. Your urine pregnancy test is negative. Negative. All right. Your other labs are pending. Patient's still pale, ill-appearing. Heart rates come up. Blood pressure's come up a little bit. What's her O2 sat? Her O2 sat's 98% on room air. Someone walks by and 
sees the EKG that you tossed into the completed EKG bins and says, wow, those ST segments look really elevated. Huh. Cool. Nurse Barb, can we add a, a trope onto that? And also a BNP. Sure. You can add a trope and a BNP. Does the patient need any more emergent management? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> let's give her... Um, aspirin? Yeah. Let's give her 325 of aspirin. Can she Can she properly chew that up? Or, no way. You give I, her I wouldn't 325 trust her. of aspirin. She chews it up just fine. Okay. Oh, lovely. Good, good job, Ann. Can we also give her some Plavix? You can. The nurse says, usually that's a medication the cardiologist order, but sure. How much Plavix do you want? 300 milligrams of Plavix. Plavix. Um, and then can we get a 12 lead EKG? You can get a 12 lead EKG. Uh, I don't have a picture for it, but it shows a paced rhythm at a rate of 75. It shows P waves that are discordant with any of the, the rest of your QRSs, which you can kind of expect what you were seeing earlier. And you see ST segments that are elevated in inferior leads with some cool. reciprocal depression on the AVR. Cool. Good thing we didn't give her nitro for yep. the fluid in her lungs, Yep, which I was tempted to do. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't give her but, nitro for her blood but, pressure of 70 um, over 40. Yeah. Yeah. That was the other thing. <laughs> That's a bad idea. Let's give her fluids. How much fluid do you want? Let's do a 500 cc bolus of normal saline. All right. 500 cc bolus of normal saline going in. Should we also call a cath attack? Maybe. Yeah, let's do that. And start her on a heparin drip. Just a thought. Would you like to? That's up to you, doctor. I would like to. I agree. Let's do it. All right. Cath attack, which for people who are not from our institution, is a code STEMI, is called overhead. And the... What actually happens? I don't actually know. Never seen one. So it depends on where you are. Uh, most of the time, interventional. It's it's the people who can actually take the patients back to the ah, okay. cath lab. Yeah. So depending on what hospital you're at, some for us, cardiology will come down and see the patient. In other places, it's sometimes a phone call to interventional and they activate the cath lab and get the appropriate staff available so that they can get the patient back right away. Hmm. So you call one, your interventional cardiologist happens to be actually right around the corner. They come and they see you and see the patient. They look at the EKG and say, yeah, looks like a STEMI to me. Let's take the patient back to the cath lab. I'm glad you were transcutaneously pacing her while we're doing that. We'll put in a transvenous pacer as well. Nice. Thank you. And they take the patient back to the cath lab and you move on with your day and you see your next patient. And about 30 minutes later, you get a call saying, hmm, interesting result. The cath showed totally clean coronary arteries. And that ends your case. What? It's a gold team problem now. <laughs> Wait, what? What? Is it? What do you think's going on? I'll preface this by you, you did most of the right things. You did pretty much all the right things. Okay. Eventually. Would you see in somebody who's like bradycardic like this and they start getting ischemic? I don't know. I imagine that like their heart starts to get a little bit ischemic. Do you see ST segment elevations from that? So why did the patient get bradycardic? Was were they? Oh, because she had. Did they have ischemia because they were bradycardic or were they bradycardic because they were because they were ischemic? Probably, yeah. So the case we're going to be talking about today was one that I had, and based on the clinical suspicion here, the most likely diagnosis for this patient was myocardial infarction related to vasospastic angina or Prinz metal angina. So these cases are interesting. I think you'll learn in med school 
that your vasospastic angina, your Prince metal angina are like coronary plaque related angina, but that will occur in people with often women with otherwise few or no cardiac risk factors often happens in the morning, often is relieved with rest uh, or nitrates, and they don't have evidence of significant coronary disease most of the time. A lot of times the picture is muddied by the fact that we live in the U.S. where most people have significant cardiovascular risk factors and have coronary plaques anyway. And so you might have vasospasm on top of your coronary plaques, and that kind of muddles the picture. Mm. In the most severe cases, you can have prolonged coronary artery vasospasm that then leads to decreased perfusion in one or multiple coronary vessels and leads to an ischemic cardiomyopathy type picture. In this case, we had a STEMI mimic that was coming from vasospasm of the coronary arteries leading to what looked like a STEMI, leading to bradycardia with a ventricular escape rhythm, which you saw as your rate of 28 with your wide complex bradycardia and dissociation between your P waves and your QRS complexes. The lucky thing with myocardial infarction and ischemia related to vasospastic disease is that for most intents and purposes, you don't really need to know that it exists. And that's the nice thing because you're going to treat this pretty much the same as another patient who's having an inferior MI that comes to your emergency department who's bradycardic. So let's talk about some of the things that we did or could do. So briefly at the beginning, patient was hypotensive, was bradycardic. They definitely needed some kind of support because they were not perfusing their organs appropriately. You briefly touched on atropine. What are your thoughts on atropine? It can help treat bradycardia. It's not going to do really anything for third degree heart block, though. You have to pace like pacing is what's going to fix that. If it was like, like if it's sinus brady, I think it's fine. I think first degree heart block, it can be, it can help as well. I'm not sure about second degree, but I know it won't do anything for this patient at least. Right. And that's the thought in most cases of complete heart block. Atropine works to decrease vagal tone, which will increase your heart rate. That is normally under some kind of uh, parasympathetic vagal mm-hmm. tone. That being said, if you've got a ventricular escape or idioventricular rhythm, you're not relying on that parasympathetic tone to mediate your heart rate significantly. And so the idea is that atropine is probably not going to work. That being said, it's super quick. It's in the code carts. It's right at bedside. It probably would, wouldn't hurt the patient to give a dose or two doses of atropine while you're getting the pacer pad set up and you're getting some fluid going and you're doing your other interventions and getting your EKG. So that would probably be a reasonable option as well, albeit it may not help the patient. But it's safe to try it. It should be safe to try it. Good to know. That's what I'm like scared of. I'm like, I know it can treat bradycardia, but is it going to like hurt this patient if the rhythm is not the right kind? In this patient who's this critically ill, probably not. The next step is, is Mm. pacing. And I was very impressed that you guys went to that step pretty quickly. We literally just had like an ACLS session a couple days ago where we learned about the pacing and defib. So So you have a patient with what they call symptomatic bradycardia. So bradycardia and signs of end organ damage, including hypotension, maybe a little bit of altered mental status, and then um, myocardial uh, ischemia. One of the reasons that you're most likely having 
uh, hypotension related to this bradycardia is it's not you're having bradycardia because of hypotension. It's you're having hypotension because you have low enough rate that with the stroke volume you can get for that rate, you're not able to perfuse your body. You're not able to have enough of a cardiac Mm -hmm. output. And so increasing your rate has a good chance of increasing your blood pressure and improving your perfusion. So pacing is definitely a good option in this case. Transcutaneous pacing, like we talked about, putting your pads on the patient, switching your machine, your Zoll, whatever machine that you have from defibrillate and cardiovert to pace, and then turning up the knob, increasing the joules by 10 and then 10 and then 10 and watching the one electrical capture. So seeing the QRS complexes, but then two, sometimes you need a little bit higher electricity to actually have mechanical capture as well, which is when you actually have those ventricular contractions and you can actually feel the the pulse. And only when you have mechanical capture, do you then have your increase in perfusion and your increase in your, your real heart rate. Transcutaneous pacing, to make you guys aware, especially in an awake patient, is painful. I don't know if you know that. It's painful to shock someone 75 times a minute. You could probably go down to about 60, a rate of 60 or 70. That's probably reasonable. Um, it's painful. So you might need to give some kind of sedation and pain control, maybe some Versed and some fentanyl, something that's a little bit more hemodynamically okay, won't drop their blood pressure too much more in order for them to be able to adequately tolerate the pacing. And then the next step is transcutaneous pacing can be finicky. It cannot work super well. And it's not going to work for a long period of time uh, or is not a really great definitive option. So eventually this patient, if they don't get a pacemaker, is going to, at least temporarily when they go up to the ICU, is going to need some kind of transvenous pacing until they've resolved their cardiogenic shock related to this ventricular rhythm. Um, And so a transvenous pacer, have you ever seen a transvenous pacer placed or seen a video on it? Nope. Um, So it's very similar to putting in a central line. I've never done it myself, but the basic premise is it's very similar, similar to putting in a central line where you put in one of those large single lumen central lines, like a cordis would be like you would do for your massive transfusion. And then you have your transvenous pacer that you thread then through that. That is a skill set that I have not yet acquired as an intern, but definitely something that's going to be useful and helpful to look up a video. So the next time that you see that that's happening, you have an idea of what's going on. A lot of this information, just like you were saying with ACLS, comes from the AHA, American Heart Association's bradycardia algorithm. So in that, they say bradycardia, heart rate of less than 60 with inadequate organ perfusion or inadequate clinical condition that they say here, ABCs, give oxygen as needed, monitor the EKG and blood pressure and vital signs, establish IV access. And then if they've got poor perfusion, prepare for transcutaneous pacing, consider atropine, and then also consider other uh, medications, which are both chronotropic and ionotropic. What are some other medications that we can be using in that situation? Say, kind of like we had, the patient started to be transcutaneously paced, their heart rate may come up, or maybe it doesn't work. um, And regardless, they're still hypotensive, and they need some more support because they're peri-arrest. Wouldn't you just start with Levo? You could think about Levo. Um, as in norepinephrine, that being said, when you have a peripheral vasoconstrictor, you're not in septic shock or vasodilatory shock. So it's probably, you know, Levo's good for most things, 
But in this case, when you've got a cardiogenic shock where your decreased blood pressure is mostly related to the fact that your heart's beating 28 times a minute, it may, it'll increase your afterload and may not help this patient too much. Like dobutamine? Uh, dobutamine may be an option. Dopamine, dopamine. May, may be an option. But even simpler, an epinephrine drip may be reasonable in these patients where you want to have both chronotropic and ionotropic effects. So the AHA bradycardia algorithm says consider epinephrine at 2 to 10 micrograms per minute or dopamine at 2 to 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And I have seen that done. And it, epinephrine works phenomenally well and may work too well. So you got to keep it to, uh, pay attention to your patient's heart rate and their blood pressure. Otherwise they'll have a heart rate of 120 and their blood pressure, systolic blood pressure will be like 260. And then, you know, you've overshot it. That's probably not a good idea for the patient either. And then prepare for transvenous pacing uh, and figure out the underlying mm. causes. So it was good that you got the patient to the cath lab for this, what looks like a STEMI or occlusive myocardial infarction mimic. And in these cases, you would do the same exact thing aspirin load, IV fluids, get the patient to the cath lab, and they will figure out the diagnosis in the cath lab. Because there's a very good chance that the same patient who's presenting here had a total coronary occlusion that led to their presentation where they infarcted out part of their AV node and ended up in this cardiogenic type shock. Any idea what they do to like treat it if it's just the vasospastic, like, do you give, because calcium channel blockers are the preventative meds, but then you're just going to slow her heart down. And if she's already bradycardic from the MI, that's no good. It's like, what do you, do you just wait until it's done? <laughs> just like support her heart until it's done? Or is there any? Like so that's a good question. And a little bit out of my realm of expertise you know that calcium channel blockers are appropriate treatment and first-line treatment for yes, stable angina. vasospastic angina. And they may also play a role when this patient's probably not in cardiogenic shock. However, from the few case studies that I was seeing of similar presentations, this kind of vasospasm resolves on its own. Um, there are other provocative medications that you can use during coronary catheterization to take a look and see if this is what's going on. Um, and they may need vasopressor support until they get through their episode of vasospasm, which is more prolonged than you usually see in this type of vasospastic angina. You've opened my eyes, Jordan, because in my mind, you're just I mean, sitting there. In my mind, vasospastic, there's always like this spectrum of like stable angina and then unstable angina. And then I, this is all coming from like my knowledge from sketchy vasospastic angina, prismal angina. And that, my, my thinking that this whole time has been like, those are all not MIs. Those are not I, like th that's like something that you can bank on is like, you can say like, oh, this person has principal engine. It's not going to become an MI. I don't have to worry about that. Basically. I did not conceptualize, I guess that a principal angina could then become an MI mimic or like, you know, like an occlusive MI mimic or that that would like block or like, you know, infarct out or ischemia out your AV node leading to a heart block like this. Very interesting. And that's a tough situation where you don't know. And the patient's coming in with as a, I don't know, maybe a 30 something year old person with no cardiac risk factors. And you think there's no way that they could have significant coronary plaques or occlusive disease. And at the end of the day, you see the occlusive MI pattern, you see symptoms that are consistent with it and you have to treat it accordingly. Yeah. I mean, in the end you would end up treating this as an MI, like an occlusive MI. 
Yes. And that's yeah. the best part about this is that regardless of whether or not you know that this entity yeah. exists as an emergency physician, you will, for the most part, treat an occlusive MI related to vasospastic angina appropriately all the time by knowing how to treat an occlusive MI. Oh, the other thing. I actually met Nurse Barb. Oh, yeah, there's a nurse yeah we, know. We, know there's a, <laughs> we know there's a nurse Barb. I didn't know this. I haven't spent much time in the emergency department. At what is she CW. like? She's very nice. She was uh, the charge nurse a few days when I was on last month. It's been a while since we've thanked Nurse Barb on the podcast. Thank you, Nurse Barb, for everything that you do. All right. Well, thank you, Jordan. It's been a while since we've done anything related to chest pain and cardiopulmonary stuff, actually. In fact, the last time we think we covered it was when we were talking about somebody who had chest pain and eventually ended up being a PE, but we were really just covering why um, contrast-induced nephropathy is a myth. I'm excited to hear your other episodes. Uh, Just circling back for our benefit, when we do the board-style cases, some other things that we could have thought about is, you know, you probably want to start fluids at the beginning anyway. We did not ask the patient about any surgical history or any allergies or any other history. Um, yeah, that would probably, be awkward if she was yeah, allergic to aspirin. While the, while the patient was still awake and alert. Yeah. Um, asking allergies is definitely very important. It's probably one of the first things I do most of the time. Mm. Because regardless of what happens, if the patient's con- condition deteriorates, at least you know what medications you can and can't right. get the patient. We're on a recency bias, bias sort of like hike right now, just because we have had, we just had our trauma simulation. And so every patient we had was like nonverbal, not talking to us mm-hmm. or anything. I would do a neurologic yeah. exam as well. A little mm-hmm. bit more of a physical exam in the case that she was actually in, if she, if you're bradycardic and hypotensive, what else can be going on? You could be yep. a neurogenic shock yep. as well. And now if you've got bilateral lower extremity weakness or something else that leads you down the path of this person actually has a spinal cord yep. pathology. That's probably something you need to know about and can get tricked up on. Pretty yeah. Easy. I was almost scared that this was going to turn into our, um, the last case that we had with you with the woman who was ultra mental status and then ended up being a hemorrhagic stroke. Well, I figure it's nice to know. Maybe we'll do a ventilator case next time. Honestly, it'd probably be actually <laughs> very useful. I just want you to feel comfortable with seeing sick patients because inevitably you're, rate of passage as an intern is going into a patient's room, realizing they're sicker than you think, and then freaking out and feeling like you need someone older and more responsible and learning to be that more mature and responsible person, realizing that you are an emergency medicine physician. You are here to stabilize the patient. You know how to do it and being able to take those first couple steps so that you can get the patient going in the right direction and then step out. And if the patient's critically ill, let your attending know because they'll probably want to be in the mm-hmm. room too, but not running out of the room trying to grab someone because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. There have been plenty of situations where I've done that where it's been correct and when I've done that when it's been wrong and you learn from them. Okay. I learned a lot today. Like a lot. All right, Kyle, what's one thing that you learned today? I'll give you two. One is more basic EKGs. I got through rate rhythm and then stopped. Look for ischemia. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> two with transcutaneous pacing. Sedation and pain control is probably a good thing to do, especially like fentanyl, so it's more cardiovascularly stable. I think my biggest thing is that whole what to do right away at the very beginning when we were like kind of considering doing atropine and then thinking, all right, well, if atropine doesn't work, because I'm sure that you'll run into those situations, then what do you move to? You can just do an epinephrine drip in order to get them to helping that bradycardio with the chronotropy and anotropy. That's what I'm going to take away at least. It's like atropine and then epinephrine, dopamine, 
and pacing. Something. Right. But while you're setting up all that pacing stuff, like you can give them that atropine. We could have done that instead of kind of uh, totaling our thumbs for a little bit, trying to figure it out. But that's what this podcast is for. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jordan. We learned quite a bit. Let's wrap up the episode. I learned a lot. I know Kyle, you did too. We're going to thank our producer, Bella, even though I don't think she's going to be answering anything today. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, if you like this podcast, please share it with two friends and only two. Leave us a nice review on iTunes and give us five stars. If you are on Spotify, you can follow us there. Send all your good vibes for us because by the time you listen to this, probably we'll have found out if actually matched or not. Yep, all good vibes to uh, emjccast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, you can send them there too. All the show notes for this, and I'm also going to include that EKG, is going to be available on emjccast.com if you want to reach out to us. That's uh, that's pretty much it, guys. Uh, do you guys have anything else to say? No, thank you yeah, for thank having you me. so much. It was a great time. Uh, that's all I got, guys. Friendly Neighborhood Met Students out. Roll out Autobots. Autobots. Roll out.